tonight. Lots of courtroom action here in Lethbridge and in the federal court, too. It's February 20th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Oh, hi, everybody. Behind me, you can see the protests that's here at the court uh, in Lethbridge every time there's a hearing inside dealing with the Coots blockade. Now, two years ago, I'm here to cover the case of the so-called Coots 4. There's also the Coots 3 and the Coots 5. A lot of people in Coots. Coots was the border crossing between Alberta and Montana, where dozens of truckers and farmers and people from the nearby community came to have a echo protest to the trucker convoy in Ottawa and the bridge blockade in Windsor, Ontario. The geographical advantage and the logistical advantage that the Coots blockade had is Coots is really far away from large population centers. It's a very small town. If you blink, you miss it when you're on the highway. It really is just a border town. There's a saloon and a few buildings, but it's, it's a small place. And the reason I mention that is if you have a hundred big rigs and big pieces of farm equipment blocking a road, you can't just call in 20 tow trucks. The nearest tow trucks are, what, three hours away. Uh, and good luck finding a tow truck driver who's willing to go against truckers and, and farmers. And so logistically and geographically, in terms of police resources, unlike Ottawa and Windsor, the men were able to hold out. But it was very peaceful the whole time. You might remember we sent a lawyer, Chad Williamson, and his team. They rotated through with the men, giving them advice, calming them down, making sure no one got too crazy, warning them, don't bring firearms here. That was a daily warning that Chad gave the men, telling them what to do if they were arrested, telling them what they had to say and didn't have to say, giving them business card. So we were extremely attentive to this. And, of course, we had two reporters embedded in the blockade, uh, Kian Simone, who's now our head of documentaries, and Sidney Fizard. These two men were there for, I think, nine days straight before they went home to get a change of clothes. I think 13 days altogether. We, of course, produced a documentary on the coup. So we were very attentive to it. And when four men were charged by the RCMP with very serious crimes involving firearms, in one case, this involving explosives, um, conspiracy to commit murder of a police officer. We were shocked by this, as was the intended effect. And in fact, after that press conference came out, many of the peaceful truckers said, yikes, I don't want any of this. And they just went home. But this was all on the eve of the invocation of Justin Trudeau's Emergencies Act. Sure looks like a uh, pretext now that uh, time has passed. They needed some proof of a violent insurrection because there simply wasn't one. In fact, the central characteristic of the trucker protest was it was peaceful. It was fun. It was joyful. They had bouncy castles and hot tubs. They waved Canadian flags, and the worst they did was honk their horns a few times. They didn't storm any buildings. Justin Trudeau wanted that January 6th insurrection narrative from the states to come to Canada. The truckers didn't give it to him. And now fast forward to today. Uh, a hearing in this court to throw out the fruits of a search warrant that was issued by a judge to uh, look into the four Coots men. Now, I should give you an update. As you know, a couple of weeks ago, two of the Coots four pled guilty to relatively minor weapons charges. Now, whether or not they actually did those minor charges, some people are skeptical. I, I think it's accurate to say if you've been in prison for two years, you might just sign anything to get out of jail and go home to see your family. Uh, so we should bear in mind that those two guilty pleas that were 
pled out in a deal two weeks ago, they might not actually be accurate. But if we take them at face value, the two men who pled out pled guilty to weapons offenses, which why would you bring a weapon? Why would you bring a gun to a peaceful blockade? Did you think that there was going to be a final stand and this would be some battle? Uh, that's not peaceful protest. That's not why the truckers and the, and the farmers were there. They were there to stand up to the lockdowns, to stand up for freedom, not for revolution. Anyways, um, two of the truckers in the Coots Ford just pled guilty just to, to end it. Two more continue on. I met the other day with Chris Carbert, one of the two remaining prisoners. I went to the Lethbridge Correctional Institute and I met with him for almost an hour. His brother was there as well, had lunch with the family. And um, I believed that there is sufficient grounds in the case of Chris Carbert to think that perhaps this was a frame up, that this was a stitch up, as the Brits would say, that this was that he was overcharged and police exaggerated the case against him just to get that PR moment that Trudeau needed. Listen, he's still charged with very serious offenses and he's still behind bars. I do not know his guilt or innocence. That's not up for me to decide. But I did decide with the family to set up a special crowdfunding campaign just for him. And the reason is so that people who don't want to give to his case don't feel that their money is being railroaded there. As you know, Rebel News and the Democracy Fund and other groups like the JCCF, we crowdfund for civil liberties cases. That means peaceful protest. That means Mahatma Gandhi-style civil disobedience where you get arrested, but not for doing anything violent, for doing what Tamara Leach did. Certainly, she's charged with a crime on the face of it, mischief, but she's a peaceful protester and she's being bullied by the state. That was what we typically raise crowd funds for. In the case of Chris Carbert, he is facing serious charges. But after my meeting with him and discussion with him and his family, I felt that for those who want to help him in his specific case, we should set up a specific crowdfund for him. So we did at helpchris.ca. And at the end of the monologue, I'll, I'll play that video that I recorded for helpchris.ca. If you feel moved, um, I will be covering the case of the Coots Four as best I can. But there's an important problem with that. A lot of what they're talking about today in the pre-trial hearing is subject to a publication ban. There's something in law called an ITO, an information to obtain. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's information the police uh, uh, take to the judge to obtain a search warrant. They take it to a judge, but it's all accusations. It's an ex parte hearing. The other side is not there to rebut it. So it's the nastiest, worstest, most embarrassing things that the police can muster to convince a judge to issue a search warrant. And some of it's true, but some of it might be embellished. Some of it's relevant, etc. So they're talking about this ITO and the search warrant. They're talking about it in court. But because it's untested allegations, because it's wild accusations, maybe not wild, but it's accusations, it's prejudicial to the defendants because they weren't there when this ITO was submitted to the judge to get a search warrant. It had to be done with an element of surprise, right? If you're getting a search warrant to spy on an accused criminal, you, you don't tip him off. So, so many things are being discussed in the court about whether or not this search warrant was valid, whether or not it should be thrown out. And they're going through the details and in the information to obtain the ITO. But I can't report them, even though I'm listening to them, even though both sides' lawyers are talking about them. Um, because if that information were to come out untested, unproven, uncross-examined, it could 
taint uh, the public, including a jury pool, on um, against the suspects because they would hear the accusations without cross-examination or rebuttal. It makes it hard to be a journalist. I'm learning a lot about the case, but I'm very limited in what I can tell you about it. I'll do my best. Um, I'm going to be here for a few more days, and I'm going to try and bring out our trucker trial expert, Robert Krejcik, who's been doing a great job covering the Tamara Leach trial in Ottawa day by day. That trial in Ottawa is on a bit of a hiatus. I want to bring Robert out here, station him in Lethbridge to report on the Coots 4 that's happening right now and the Coots 3 that's going on starting in a week from now. There's a lot of Coots trials going on and the prosecutor for many of them is the same guy. His name is Stephen Johnston and I'm sure he would say he's doing his job. He's loyal to his client, the province of Alberta, but he was the same prosecutor who went after Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky, who I think he was the same prosecutor who went after Chris Scott, the owner of the Whistle Stop Cafe. I think for him, it's a moral vendetta now. He's so obsessed with getting every single protester. The lengths they went to to shut down Arthur Pavlovsky and Chris Scott were astonishing. And I'm worried that that same prosecutorial zeal is getting in the way of clear thinking here. I don't know at the end what the four men did and what the two men still on trial in the Coots for did, but they've been in prison for two full years pre-trial. That's an enormous amount of time in prison before they've had their day in court. You know, I, I have personally seen rapists in court get fewer days served in jail after a conviction. It's very troubling. Anyhow, it's sort of slightly hard to, to talk with Arthur Pavlovsky giving his speech in the background. He comes down even when he's not on trial to show moral support to the truckers inside. So to wrap up, I'm here to cover the pre-trial hearing where the two remaining defendants in the Coots 4 are applying to the judge to throw out the search warrant that was executed against the Coots 4. They're trying to prove to the judge that the information to obtain was improper and the search warrant itself was executed improperly. Uh, this is because the trial will come up and whether or not the search warrant is admissible is a huge determinator. Next week, the Coots 3 are on trial as well. And we are crowdfunding each of their lawyers too. There's a lot of, there's a lot of litigation going on and Stephen Johnson, the prosecutor, is behind quite a lot of it. Um, so that's what I'm doing here in Lethbridge, and hopefully I'll be joined too by an expert in these trucker trials. But two other things happened uh, today that I want to tell you about. It was a very busy day, and my head is still spinning. Um, as you know, over the last two weeks, we've gone to, to court three times, not as journalists, but as plaintiffs. We saw that David Lametti, the former justice minister, had illegally deleted government records, namely his government Twitter account. Anyhow, I, I made a video this morning announcing the news. The news came out while I was in court. The news is the court, the federal court issued their ruling. And here, instead of me repeating what I recorded this morning, take a look at this video that I recorded minutes after learning about the, about the ruling. 
Ezra Levant here. I've got breaking news from you. I'm actually in Lethbridge covering the trial of the Coots Four, the two remaining members of it, when on my phone I get an email from the Federal Court of Canada. They've issued a ruling in our landmark case, Rebel News versus David Lametti. You might recall that a couple weeks ago we noticed that David Lametti had pressed delete on his Twitter account. Who's David Lametti? You'll remember he's a disgraced former Trudeau justice minister who brought in the Emergencies Act two years ago, which was recently reviewed and ruled to be illegal and unconstitutional by the federal court. After that incredible ruling, Lametti resigned in disgrace and slinked off to some cushy private law firm. But on his way out the door, he clicked delete on his government records. I don't care what he does with his personal Twitter account, but this was a government civil service run government property would be like torching everything in the filing cabinet that's not yours to do and more the point victims of the emergencies act people who had their bank accounts seized they are now suing the government for the illegal and unconstitutional treatment at the hands of lametti how much clearer could it be that lametti was trying to destroy evidence as he sneaked out the back door so rebel news and myself went to court on an emergency basis no one else in the country did everyone was watching this I don't know, is it a crime? It's against the law, certainly, to delete public records. Everyone was watching it in slow motion. We jumped in and filed an emergency injunction. Our lawyers worked all weekend, and we had a hearing and then another hearing, and then the final four-hour hearing in the matter, where Lametti had five lawyers paid for by taxpayers, was held by no one less than the Chief Justice of the Federal Court of Canada, the big man himself. When I saw that, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, either they're bringing in the top man because if you're going to spank a justice minister, you better have your most senior judge do it. Or I thought, yikes, they're bringing in a buddy of Lametti's just to, you know, finesse this whole thing. I didn't quite know which way it would go. Anyways, I just got the email of the ruling, and we're going to post it all at stopthecoverup.com. That's a special website we made with all our news on the Lametti suit. And I'd say it's a mixed bag. We wanted the court to spank Lametti. We wanted the court to say you were caught red-handed. You were deleting records contrary to the law. We got you. We wanted the courts to say that, but they wouldn't. What they did do was a half win, I guess. Instead of ordering Lametti and issuing a court order that uh, requires those records to be preserved, the court did two things. Number one, it ordered Lametti to file with the court an undertaking, as it's called, which is sort of like a lawyer's professional promise not to meddle with those records. So, I don't know, it's like a pinky swear, but for lawyers, I much rather would have had a court order, but the court is ordering him to make a pinky swear promise. I'd call that a half win. The other win that we got, which would not have happened were it not for our lawsuit, is that Lametti is required to transfer his Twitter account to the library and archives for them to handle. Now, that still makes me nervous because who runs library and archives? Well, Trudeau does. And I think they're just handing it to someone who's going to delete the records that Lametti wants deleted. That said, we managed to get those two things. And most importantly, as soon as we filed the lawsuit against Lametti, he reactivated his Twitter account that would have been deleted. I read the ruling, and you can read it at StopTheCoverOff.com, and the judge said two things that I think were absolutely wrong, and frankly, one of them was a little bit embarrassing. The first thing the judge said is that there's no proof that there would be irreparable harm if no order was issued. Well, 
Of course, the irreparable harm is once those records are deleted, they can never be got back. And, and there are people suing Lametti for his atrocious and unconstitutional conduct. If those records are gone, they're gone. That's the irreparable uh, harm that would come. So I think the judge missed that one. But the second point is, I think, a little bit embarrassing. Of course, Twitter uh, archives, um, in, if you have Twitter, you have every single tweet you've ever made, every single private communication called a direct message, every single interaction, everything. But there's a free website on the internet called the Wayback Machine, which takes sort of snapshots at random times of the web. And it's irregular and it's owned by a private uh, entity. It's not a government thing. It just, just takes snapshots of the web and it's useful for looking up what things were looked like 10 years ago. You could see, for example, what Facebook looked like 10 years ago. It's sort of interesting. The judge said that way back machine is pretty good. So even if Lametti did destroy government documents, well, there are lots of snapshots of what his Twitter account looked like. I, I, Maybe that's what a 70-year-old man thinks of the internet, and no disrespect, I'm not too far away from 70 years old myself, but uh, maybe there's a problem when you're having an internet case, a Twitter case, and the judge has never used Twitter, as he admitted in the ruling, and he actually thinks that uh, some random website taking pictures of a government's uh, Twitter account is the same as preserving records. I actually thought that was sort of embarrassing for the uh, Chief Justice to say, or maybe it was sort of, oh, I'm just a caveman. I don't know about these high-tech things. I'm going to let the minister off. I don't know. I'm not thrilled with it, but I am thrilled with what we did. I'm thrilled that unlike anyone else in the country, we jumped into action when we saw Lamadi breaking the law, and he was breaking the law. It's against the law to delete government records, which he tacitly acknowledged by reviving his Twitter account after he pressed delete. We are the people who can take credit for getting him to make his pinky swear undertaking, and we are the people who made the judge order that library and archives take possession of the Twitter account. On the whole, I'd say the success here was 7 out of 10 in terms of actual results. However, the judge says because we didn't get a preservation order, which is what we wanted, we lost. And so he's asked us to pay the cost of the government. He hasn't said how much. That has to be haggled out. We have a decision to make. Do we appeal and try and get that formal preservation order? I'm not sure if it's worth it financially. There's going to be a little bit of a battle because those five government lawyers are going to demand that Rebel News pay their bills because we didn't get everything we want. I think that's atrocious, and we'll have to see if we can convince them otherwise. But I guess how I would end this is that was a very rebel moment. We cover the news, we do journalism, and we saw a disgraced liberal trying to sneak out the door and destroy records on his way out, the modern version of a paper shredder. We leapt into action with the support of you, our viewers. We crowdfunded Chad Williamson and Scott Nickel, two great freedom-oriented lawyers who rushed to court and did a great job representing freedom and the rights of the little guy. And in the end, although I think there's a lot of flaws in this ruling, and I think the judge actually made some embarrassing errors, in the end, we got the court to order him to make an undertaking not to meddle with these records, and he has to file that undertaking within seven days. And library and archives will take hold of the records, not himself. So on the whole... I'd call it a win, and none of it would have been possible without you. To see the ruling yourself, go to StopTheCoverUp.com. I'm very excited about that. It wasn't the total win that I wanted. I wanted the federal court to say to Lametti, you're under a preservation order, you touch it, you're going to jail, blah, 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 the toughest thing. But maybe that's not realistic to have a chief justice tell a justice minister, 
to make any sort of threat like that, but to require the justice minister, former justice minister, to sign a lawyer's undertaking not to meddle and to hand the files over to library and archives, the more I think about it, the more that's actually a huge win. And even just filing the lawsuit against him caused him to reinstate his Twitter account. I actually think, other than that flourish of the judge twisting the knife in Lametti, I think we actually got everything we wanted to get. I feel pretty good about that, and thanks to you for supporting it. No one else was in court. No one else thought it was grievous enough to go to court to stop. I'm glad we did. Anyway, so that's part two of uh, my show today. Part one was my sort of rambling explanation of what I'm trying to do here at court, even though I'm not allowed to discuss most of what's going on. Part two is the David Lamenti victory. And part three, let me tell you my thinking about why I decided to set up a special crowdfund for Chris Carbert. I hope it's the right thing to do. Meeting with him and the family sort of broke my heart what he's been through. The fact that while he was in jail, his brother passed away. His father passed away. He lost his two kids. I mean, he was a single dad before. Obviously, they've gone to be with the mother. How heartbreaking is that? I suppose any prisoner is subject to those deprivations, and that's irrelevant to the uh, questions of what, what he did and didn't do. But it certainly touched me to see him, a man who's spent two years in jail. He told me he hadn't seen trees or grass in two years, and it was very hard to hear him. If you want to help Chris Carbert, go to helpchris.ca, and, th and those are special funds that won't be mingled with any other crowd funds. If there is a surplus at the end of the day, which I doubt, it'll go to other trucker trials. Here's our video for Help Chris, and then I'll come back for a final thought afterwards. Ezra Levant here from Rebel News. I'm in Lethbridge, Alberta, outside the Lethbridge Correctional Center. Inside is Chris Carbert one of the so-called Coots Four, four men who were charged at the Coots border blockade over two years ago. In Chris's case, he was charged with three other men with conspiracy to commit murder against a police officer. It was shocking news when the RCMP announced it, so shocking that the rest of the truckers basically packed it in. People didn't want to be associated with the threat of violent crime. In fact, one of the important characteristics of the trucker protest all across Canada, not only at the Coots border blockade, but in Windsor, Ontario, and in Ottawa, was just how peaceful it all was. It was a protest of bouncy castles and hot tubs, and at the most, horn honking. That's why Canadians loved it. That's why Trudeau hated it. Trudeau wanted a January 6th insurrection narrative, the truckers simply refused to give it to him. The media tried, but with citizen journalists, including embedded in the blockade itself, for example, we had two rebel reporters there the whole time, Trudeau simply couldn't make that case. But then an astonishing set of charges were made, and shortly thereafter, Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, putting the country under a form of martial law, something never used before, not even during 9-11. Some people immediately said, was this arrest and were these charges a pretext to launch the Emergencies Act? I think it was a fair question, given how politicized police were during the lockdowns. But when information came out from police and prosecutors, it looked like it was very serious indeed. Rebel News was crowdfunding legal defenses for truckers charged with civil disobedience, and by that... I mean peaceful protests. You may know that Rebel News represents thousands of people across the country, or 
More precisely, Rebel News has crowdfunded for thousands of people. Some are represented by Rebel News. Many are represented through the Democracy Fund. Rebel News crowds funds for Tamara Leach, the great trucker leader in Ottawa, for Arthur Pavlovsky, the Christian pastor in Alberta, who was actually prosecuted for giving a sermon to the truckers. But Rebel News made the decision not to provide crowdfunding for the four Coots men because the nature of the charges against them were not civil liberties charges. They were charges of most grave crimes. Rebel News did pay for the bail hearing at their first instance, sending four lawyers. But after that, it simply was, in my personal view, outside the scope of the donor intentions. Donors wanted peaceful protest, but having a conspiracy to commit murder obviously exceeded that. But as the months turned into years, questions arose. Did these men actually do what they were accused of doing? But then a couple of weeks ago, something absolutely surprising happened. At least it was surprising to me. Two of the Coots four, frankly, the two that I thought the police had the strongest case against, signed a plea bargain, made a deal to walk out of jail immediately for time served. And these were men who were charged with the others with conspiracy to commit murder, but they pled guilty to very minor weapons charges, the kind of thing that if they happened to you as a hunter or a farmer, would at most have your uh, firearms license suspended for a number of years, at most a suspended sentence, no jail time. If these were the men who've been kept in prison for two full years and all the Crown prosecution wanted from them is an admission that they, in, in one case, had an unauthorized loaded weapon and in another case, a man agreed to bring a gun to the blockade, which was a bad idea, of course. But, if, but that's far from a conspiracy to commit murder. If the two men that I perceive to have the, the weakest case in this prosecution would get such a such an easy plea. What about the other two? And so today I visited Chris Carbert in the Lethbridge Correctional Center. I spoke at length with the family. We talked about some of the evidence. We talked about what it's like in prison. And I said to Chris that while I made the decision two years ago with the facts in front of me, and while I think that that decision based on those facts, was correct at the time, I no longer feel that way. I'm not in a position to say whether or not Chris Carbert is innocent or guilty. That's not my job. That's a job for the courts. But it is crystal clear to me that the police overcharged him, that the prosecutors have exaggerated what these men have done, and that the evidence may not be what the police claimed it was in that ITO information to obtain when they first brought it to the court. And if that is the case, the fact that Chris Carbert and Tony Olenek are still in jail two years later is actually a political punishment for being embarrassers of Justin Trudeau. And the sense that many people had two years ago that these were trumped up political charges to pave the way for the Emergencies Act may well be true. These men could still be found guilty of the severe crimes mentioned before, but I don't think that's likely anymore. And so while these charges still exceed 
what Rebel News and certainly the Democracy Fund would normally crowdfund for. After talking to the family, I have decided to set up a special crowdfunding account just for Chris Carver at helpchris.ca. And in talking to Chris and the family, we've decided to proceed this way. All funds at helpchris.ca will go to pay for his lawyers to help run the trial or do other legal work in the weeks and months ahead. Not to pay past legal bills, but to pay legal bills in the future. The crowdfunding at helpchris.ca will be public and transparent for everyone to see, the family and the public. Should there be a surplus in the fund at the end of the trial, Chris and the family and I agree that the funds should go to other trucker litigation, including that funded by the Democracy Fund. As I mentioned before, Rebel News and or the Democracy Fund have represented 55 truckers in Alberta alone, as well as Windsor and Ottawa, including Tamara Leach. Some people will not want to contribute to this because they may believe that the police and the prosecutors have something here, that these men did commit a crime, or at least we should wait until we find out what the judge has to say. And I respect that, and that's why I am not using funds that were granted just for civil liberties purposes in this matter. This is a completely new crowdfund that will be held separate and apart. But the fact that two men were let go in the manner that they were suggests to me that the Crown does not have the case that they claimed they did. I'll tell you one more thing I learned today when I talked to Chris. He was not allowed certain disclosure until two years, in fact, just very recently. In fact, some disclosure from the Crown he has not received yet. Disclosure, by the way, are details on all the evidence, including exculpatory evidence that could prove his innocence. One of those, said Chris, was a message that he texted to people saying, come to Coots for a peaceful protest. And this was hidden from him and his lawyers in the disclosure package until very recently. Why would police do that? Why would police overcharge? Why would they attempt to try the case in the court of public opinion? Was it to help Justin Trudeau? proceed with the invocation of the Emergencies Act? Why would they decline to disclose, as is their constitutional obligation? And why was the case, so serious when it was announced, dropped so lightly against Chris Lysak and Jerry Moran, who were let go with modest firearms offenses? Given the facts that I know now, I can no longer say that this is not a civil liberties case. I believe it is. I don't know Chris Carbert well, nor do I know the family well. And any prisoner has hardships. Chris has told me that during his time in prison, his father passed away and his brother passed away. I'm sure the stress of having Chris in jail made both of their situations worse. He told me about his children who are growing up without their dad. These are heartbreaking things to hear. And I'm sure every prisoner, whether they're charged with a civil liberties offense or whether they're charged with a horrendous crime, has the same personal hardship. But in this case, I am increasingly of the view that he is a political prisoner. I told him that we're going to help, and we're going to help in the special way I've described. 
And if you believe that we should help Chris Carver, whereas we didn't in the past, if you, like me, think we should, then please join me. I've made the first donation of $500 at helpchris.ca. And together, hopefully we can get him legal representation that will help us get to the truth. And if the truth is as I suspect it is, to his acquittal and release. Go to helpchris.ca. Well, that's the show for today. I'm a bit rambly because partly because the loudspeakers in the background are in my ear and partly because I'm still digesting what I heard in the courtroom itself. I'll be here tomorrow and soon Robert Krejcik will be here to cover all these trials. I will come back from time to time because they're very interesting. Thanks for your support journalistically and to those of you who have crowdfunded the lawyers for the various men in these cases. The, the one fellow amongst the Coots 4 we're now helping and, of course, the Coots 3, the Coots 5, and the 55 other truckers we're representing in Alberta. 55 of them, if you can believe it. That's our show for today. On behalf of all of us at Rebel News, to you at home, good night and keep fighting for freedom.